Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Tonight, we are going to talk about Christians who are same-sex attracted. Um, This is a huge question in our world today, and we need to think well about it as believers. Now, three more notices for you. The first of which is this. This is an in-house conversation, okay? Meaning that this isn't a political stance that I'm gonna take, or even a social stance, or St. Hill's vision for Newburgh or anything like that. This is a message to Christians, uh, to people who are born again. So if you're not born again and you're not a Christian, I'm a Christian pastor. I like the Bible, I talk about the Bible. Uh, I'm not trying to like overtake the government or your culture or anything like that. This is an in-house conversation. Secondly, a a little note on language. Um, The language around this issue is constantly changing. And along with uh, the language changing um, and, and using the language that is constantly changing comes into buying into a political agenda. I am not going to concede. Uh, And so I will be using other language, the language of traditional hermeneutic and progressive hermeneutic instead of affirming or non-affirming. I don't think those are helpful. That's not helpful language. And I'm going to be using the term same-sex attracted persons instead of gay. The reason for, we'll get to a little bit later. Thirdly, uh, third notice to you, this will not be a church stance message. Like, I'm not giving a message like, this is the church's stance from now on. I don't wanna tell you what to think. I don't wanna tell you what our specific 501c3 stance is. You are not saved by your theology on this issue. Our stance as a church is that every person should be reconciled to God. That's our stance. So what this message will be is a meditation on the role the Bible plays in your life. I would say that this question of whether the Bible accommodates, encourages, or prohibits same-sex sex is the test of what your hermeneutic is. Like a Rorschach test, what you see when you look at this issue theologically will flay open the role the Bible plays in your life. It'll tell, if you were to tell me, this is where, what I see when I see this issue, I'll be like, that tells me your hermeneutic. This is what I see when I, when I see uh, this issue. It will tell me a hermeneutic. I wanna illustrate this as we get going. There are six passages in the Bible that seem to prohibit same-sex sex. Here's the list of all six, and, and, and you can take a picture of this. I would encourage you to go and to read these on your own, and there's like literal tomes, books, uh, written about these different six passages uh, that you can uh, you know, read and, and lots of different takes and, and whatnot. Um, we'll address some of these tonight, but not all of them. In each case of all six passages, same-sex sexual activity is condemned or prohibited. But in some cases, such as uh, the Genesis 19 case, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the condemnation isn't clear. Is it condemnation because of the same-sex sex or... Is it condemnation because of the way in which the same-sex sex was taking place, i.e. rape or abuse, inhospitality, okay? These passages matter. 
Because how you interpret them has a really, has, has very significant consequences. I remember um, talking, this is probably, I don't know, four or five years ago now. I remember talking with a friend of mine who uh, was going to this church and they were going through an incredibly nasty church split over this particular issue. And so I asked him, I said, well, has there been any discussion of the six passages in the Bible that speak about homosexuality and how they're supposed to be interpreted in context? And he said something to me, he said, you know, not really. It's been more of a listening to people's experience sort of moment for our church. I was shocked. Why was I shocked? I was shocked because both my and their hermeneutic differed so much. See, I made an assumption that maybe some of you, if you heard that story, you also make the, have made this assumption. I made an assumption about Christians and the Bible. See, I believed that the words of the Bible were meant to be more authoritative in Christians' lives than someone's feelings or experience. No matter how authentically they may feel those things, there was an objective truth that we submitted ourselves to as Christians. But here in this church was a completely different hermeneutic the feelings and experiences of individuals today could actually change what sort of moral guidance one gets from the Bible. And these were amazing, great Christian, godly people. They're not bad Christians at all. I'm not here to make that, that case or that statement at all tonight. See, everyone takes some of the Bible to be authoritative over their lives, but not all of the Bible to be authoritative over, your li over our lives. Like we have a value at our church that the Bible is authoritative. It tells us the truth that leads to freedom. The reality is, is that most of us believe the Bible is sometimes authoritative over our lives, depending on the passage. And those passages that I really like like Psalm 23, or like Romans 8, or like Hebrews 10, those are the authoritative ones over our lives. For the liberal, the authoritative passages are the ones about the love of Christ, the justice of the Old Testament prophets for caring for the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the poor. For the conservative, it's the commands of Paul and the apocalyptic words of Jesus around his return and impending judgment. See, imagine that you have a pair of reading glasses sitting by your bedside, and it's sort of like we all have these glasses that we put on before we read the Bible, and the glasses tell you what to allow in and what should ricochet off of them. So here's the question tonight. What sort of glasses do you wear? Or, in Bible language, what is your hermeneutic? What sort of glasses do you wear? Now, here are five pretty general examples uh, I see today of glasses that people wear when coming to the Bible. The first is this. The Bible is a reference book for living. This leads to a literal interpretation. I would imagine, there's a lot of us in this room, this is how we read the Bible. Hey, the Bible says it, that settles it. You just have to believe it. It's a literal interpretation. Just whatever it says, that's what it is. That's one hermeneutic. That's one set of glasses you can wear. The second one is this. The Bible is a confusing story that can't really be understood for moral living. That's another set of glasses that we see commonly in our culture. Number three, Jesus' love trumps all rules for living or the depiction of design. It's all about Jesus. At one time, I used to be a bartender, and I had this couple come in, and, and I was telling them, yeah, we just planted this church, St. Hill, and uh, they're like, oh, we have been looking for a church that's all Jesus and no Paul. And I was like, wow, okay. I've never heard of a church that's all Jesus, no Paul, but I actually, I understand where you're coming from. 
Number four, all of human history runs along the lines of oppressed or oppressor. Christians should overthrow perceived oppressors. This is like a Marxist set of sunglasses that people put on when they come to the scriptures. And number five, the Bible is wisdom literature. It must be carefully translated into our world today. And really, all of these different hermeneutics, all these different glasses that people wear when they come to the Bible, they boil down into two larger camps around the Bible. The first is the objectivist camp. And this is what the objectivist believes about the Bible. God uses human language in the Bible to tell us definitively about his ways, works, will, and worship. The scriptural past, this is the key phrase, the scriptural past is wiser than the community's present. In other words, the Bible is above whatever the community is sensing or feeling in a given moment. But then there's the subjectivist. This is a different view. In the growing understanding and wisdom of the community of the Spirit, God uses its communal experience to tell us about his ways, workings, will, and worship. While scripture witnesses definitively to the unique work of Jesus, it also reflects a culturally and scientifically limited worldview that we must transcend. The community's present is wiser than the scriptural past. All of those hermeneutics essentially boil down into those two camps. Now, on this particular issue of homosexuality, the church of every denomination, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, for 2,000 years has been in agreement that men and women having sex with their same gender was not a part of God's vision for human flourishing until now. There's a move to change how we read these six different passages. Why? Why now? I'd like to propose that a changing culture began to influence the glasses that Christians traditionally wore when reading the Bible. We got new glasses from our culture, and we began to wear them and look at the Bible through them. See, there are generally three arguments for changing how we read passages about same-sex sexual activity. And I think we really need to take these arguments very, very seriously in order to love God and to love people well. And I'm gonna present them without my response. I'm trying not to, there's, there's no straw men. I've really done a ton of reading this past couple months. And then, um, actually, I, I was a youth pastor for a number of years and had several gay kids in my youth group and did a ton of reading around that time as well. But I'm gonna present these without my, my reactions. Eventually, I'm gonna to get to my reactions and, and what I think about these three different arguments. Sound good? Yeah. Yes, everybody, we should all take a deep breath. Can we do that? You're looking like you haven't breathed in a while. Okay, <laughs> I'm the one who should be nervous, really, but all right, here we go. Okay, the first argument for changing how we read these passages is the hermeneutic of progress. The hermeneutic of progress. In essence, this way of thinking about the Bible falls into the category that the Bible is an old document with some bedrock wisdom in it, but we should leave some of it behind. The Bible gives us some general wisdom for living, but not specific moral direction that isn't attached to cultural norms of an ancient world. And there are two things in this view, two things that we need to expand far beyond. That's Adam and Eve and Ephesians 5 marriage. We need to get past them. Do you remember uh, three weeks ago, it now seems like, it was like, for me it seems like a century ago because of how much work this whole series has taken, but three weeks ago, 
I said there's a very, very important question that you really need to think about. Do you remember this question? The question was this. Is Adam and Eve's marriage an ideal we should return to, or is it a good starting point to evolve from? Think about it. Is Adam and Eve's marriage a good, uh, a good, an ideal that we should return to in marriage, or is it a place to start and evolve from? Well, one author that I read uh, while I was researching for this whole thing, her name was Megan DeFranza, and she is amazing, truly so smart, and I'd really encourage um, you, if you want to hear a, a hermeneutic of progress view, uh, her stuff was really, really good. Um, and she had an absolutely fascinating take on this hermeneutic. She essentially said this, she said, okay, the design descriptions in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two are general descriptions of God's design. They're not specific. They describe a majority of people, but there are people who do not fit within the Genesis one and Genesis chapter two design framework. In other words, most humans fit into the categories of male and female, and most experience opposite sex attraction like Adam experienced when he first saw Eve. But not all. Not everybody. There's transgender people, and there's gay people, for example. Now, the way that she supports this is super interesting. I'd never heard this before. DeFranza says this. In Genesis 1, uh, God makes land creatures and water creatures. There's a moment where he makes a bunch of creatures for land, and then a moment where he makes a bunch of creatures for the sea. But it doesn't talk about amphibians, creatures that live on the land and creatures that live in the water. So could it be, her thinking would go, that Genesis 1 is not an account of all kinds of creatures in the world? Could there be room for us to understand that while male-female marriage may be the majority practice, it shouldn't be the only kind of marriage. Like maybe some humans are like uh, amphibians, not mentioned by the Genesis 1 account. In other words, Adam and Eve were a place to start, but not a place to return. They're not an ideal, but rather just the start of the story of humanity in marriage before God. Now, this has implications felt for Christian marriage. She says the lack of clarity around marriage in the Bible, because the Bible is not very clear on what a marriage should be, this is her argument, um, it allows us to change definitions of marriage. So she would say, Ephesians 5 is somewhat clear about marriage, kind of, but Ephesians 5 is just so patriarchal still. All the language about wives submitting to your husbands, we talked about that last week. If you're, you can get mad at me for this sermon and then you can go back and listen to that sermon and you can get mad at me again. It's very, very fun. Uh, and the assumption that she has goes like this, that a real loving marriage would need to, it would be necessary for a loving marriage to evolve beyond Ephesians 5, and many uh, Christian marriages have evolved beyond the patriarchy of Ephesians chapter 5. In her mind, mutual love and equity is better and more sophisticated than the roles of Jesus and the church as the model for marriage. And so, perhaps, if marriage is still evolving in love beyond patriarchy, then we should also allow marriage to evolve to include same-sex couples. That's the first argument, the hermeneutic of progress. Okay, <laughs> you guys, I'm having fun. It doesn't look like you're having fun. Uh, 
you're like, is this what we're supposed to do in church? Well, for this Sunday, this, it's like a lecture, sorry, okay? Sometimes it's all the feels, sometimes it's like this. Okay, the next argument for changing how we read passages about same-sex sex is that the New Testament prohibitions of same-sex sex were about intensity, not direction. The prohibitions are about intensity, not direction. In summary, what Paul was condemning wasn't the direction of one's affections and sexual expression towards the same gender. That's not what he's condemning. He was condemning the intensity of their sexual expression. See, in the first century, males were expected to dip into same-sex sex from time to time. This is a part of Roman culture. And often the instances of men having sex with men were filled with abuse and power dynamics. For example, older men having sex with boys as a part of their mentorship of the young boy. This is called pederasty. It's very common. Or of slaves being forced into sex with their owners. Uh, Or of the Roman elite like Nero who raped boys and even raped his own mother. Yeah. So the problem that Paul was noticing wasn't that men were having sex with men, it was that their sex lacked consent. And that in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, Paul was likely referring to elite households and their inhospitality and the injustice of them using lower classes and vulnerable people for their pleasure. Now, one piece of evidence that scholars use is that in the list of sins in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, the condemnation for homosexual sex is followed, right after it, is followed by a condemnation of slave traders. Why are they grouped together? Well, the thinking goes that they are linking these two practices, that Paul was linking these two practices and condemning the exploitative nature of a slave owner forcing sex with their male slave. Make sense? Okay, that's the second argument. It's about intensity, it's not about direction. Now, lastly, and probably the most general and I think honest argument for changing how we read the passages about same sex sex is that Paul just doesn't know what we know. Paul doesn't know what we know. The argument goes something like this. Paul didn't know about orientation or the mental world of individuals. And so he surely wouldn't have condemned same-sex sexual activity if he knew that some people are born gay. William Loder, an unbelievably sharp Australian scholar, really champions this position. And he has essentially stated that that Paul was just wrong about sex. So here's what he says. Asking gay people to not express their sexuality comes from Paul's strict adherence to the sexual prohibitions in Leviticus 18, which are based on limited understanding of human sexuality. In other words, Paul uses Leviticus 18's sexual framework as the sexual framework for Christians. And we shouldn't do that because now we know that Leviticus 18 lacks knowledge about orientation and modern sexual and gender theory. Okay, So that's the second, that's the third argument, is that Paul just didn't know what he was talking about, and now we know. Now, I must admit, some of these arguments are not only theologically interesting to somebody like me, you're like, not to me. Well, to somebody like me, they're very interesting, and they're even emotionally compelling in some regard, and I have truly wrestled with them. You can ask my wife, I had moments of crisis over the past three months as I was reading through these arguments and really trying to understand like, okay, what is, that? What is actually my hermeneutic, and am I applying it across the board the same way that I'm applying it to these different passages? Um, and I think there's some really legitimate questions that each one of you 
as a believer in 2022, you need to contemplate and you need to think about because you likely have family members who are gay or you have friends who are gay. And uh, I think we really need to care for people well. And if you are here tonight and you believe one or, a mul or multiple of these arguments, that's totally okay. Um, you belong in this family before you think what I think, okay? And you don't have to ever think what I think on this particular issue. In fact, there's a, there's, there are a couple different families in this church who I am profoundly sharpened by, very close with, who disagree with me on this particular issue, okay? Um, I am not personally convinced that the Bible encourages or allows for same-sex sexual activity for Christians. See, here's my hermeneutic. Let me show you my work. Here's my hermeneutic, the glasses that I wear. Uh, Alex's hermeneutic, here you go. The first part of my hermeneutic is that Jesus is the door to all truth. Here's what I mean. I don't believe the Bible because the Bible's so amazing. I believe the Bible because Jesus is the resurrected king and he believed the Bible. So see how I get there? I believe the Bible, but I believe the Bible because I believe Jesus. So he becomes the door to all truth. Jesus didn't stand, you know, on the mountain at the, at, the, at the end with his disciples and say, all authority has been given to this Bible or to the Torah. The Bible has authority, hear me. What he says is, all authority has been given to me and he believed the Bible. Does that make sense? The Bible has authority because Jesus has authority and he believed it, okay? So the second thing that I do when I'm thinking about my hermeneutic is this. What did Jesus believe about the text? As I'm looking at difficult passages, as I'm doing theology, my, my next part of my hermeneutic is, okay, but did Jesus ever talk about it? Because if he talked about it, it makes it very easy, right? What did he think? I'm gonna think the same thing. Where there are gray areas, we have what's, what I like to call a relational hermeneutic. And this comes from John 15. Jesus says, you are no longer servants, you're my friends, and now I'm gonna make known everything the Father's told me, I'm gonna make it known to you. So what is the context for understanding friendship? What is the context for you understanding what God thinks? It's being his friend. So what, what I'm, I'm getting at is this. It is very difficult to understand the Bible outside of relationship with him. You, you, it, without a submitted relationship to the Lord, the Bible is very confusing. But for some of you, you've experienced this. With a submitted relationship to the Lord, there's some confusing parts, but it's generally quite clear. Okay, now, Let's say that it still is a gray area, okay? I got my relational hermeneutic going, I'm praying, I'm listening, all that stuff. Now here's what I do next. I try my best to make sense of the most theological data points with the least contradictions, okay? <laughs> so I take it all in, I'm like, okay, what is said about women speaking in church? Okay, so there's, there's some moments over here where it talks about women are not supposed to speak in church, and then there's like this whole moment where Paul says, if you have any questions about the letter to the Romans, just ask Phoebe, and she can explain it to you, and I'm like, well, explaining Romans, that sounds like preaching to me. And so I'm, I'm trying to take like all of these data points in, and then I'm trying to make sense of, okay, what is the theological tr thread of truth that is weaving through all these different data points? Okay. Then what I do is I go this. Uh, what is the meta story being told and how does this perspective affirm it? Does this perspective on this text or on this issue contradict the entire overarching story of the Bible and of humans and God? If it does, maybe I'm not right about this particular issue. And then lastly, I check with this. How has the church read this? What has been the consensus of the church for 2,000 years, tradition? What has been the traditional interpretation? And, and here is why, my, with my hermeneutic, 
I am not convinced personally that we should change the way that we have read these six different passages. The first reason is, about, is, is because of Jesus and his reaffirmation of design. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this because I gave like a whole message on this passage uh, three weeks ago, the first message of this series. Um, but just to reiterate, I want to have a Jesus hermeneutic, if I can. I wanna see with Jesus' glasses. So how did Jesus understand human sexual design? Many people think he had nothing to say about same-sex sex, but he did. When pressed about divorce and marriage, Jesus goes back to Genesis 2 for his definition of what marriage is. He does not do what Megan DeFranza does, with, with all due respect. Okay, here's what happens. Haven't you read, he replied to those asking him, what about divorce? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, he's quoting here from Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. A little bit later on, Jesus replies to them again. Not everyone can accept this word. In other words, I know, marriage is really, it's very specific, and it's kind of a high bar but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So here's what he's doing here. He is rooting his idea about marriage and sexuality, male and femaleness, in Genesis 2, validating the design. But he also knows that there are people who don't fit into the Genesis 1 and 2 framework, like eunuchs. They don't have their genitalia, or they've, they've been forced into a life of living without sex, essentially. Um, so Jesus then says, if you don't fit into the binary of male-female, and you can't imagine being married for life, like a eunuch wouldn't have been married for life, then there are perfectly acceptable other ways of living without sex when your aim for all of life is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. Uh, a gay celibate um, Christian priest named Wesley Hill, who's just an amazing guy, uh, he, he says this about this specific moment. He says, Jesus doesn't update the text through the current experience of people. In fact, he critiques the current practice by going back to the original design of male and female marriage in Genesis 1. Jesus clearly treats the created order as a guide for the moral order of the world. The second issue I take with this argument that we need a hermeneutic of progress is that Ephesians 5 marriage is patriarchal and since we've moved beyond the patriarchal marriage of Ephesians 5, we should continue to move even further, more progress, to accept people of the same gender getting married. Um, so here's my question to, to you. What is the standard for marriage in Ephesians 5? What is the standard? Does anybody remember? The standard, you're like, I'm not saying anything in this gathering. The standard for... The standard for marriage in Ephesians chapter five is Christ and the church. That's the standard for marriage. Is it a reasonable love? No. Is it like a business partnership? No. With equality all spelled out, you do this and I do this, sign on the dotted line? No. It's Christ and the church, very unreasonable. And let me ask you this, is Christ's relationship with the church patriarchal? I don't think so. He serves, he dies for his church. 
The fact that marriages have evolved to be less patriarchal and more equitable doesn't mean that we should throw out design and change the definition of marriage altogether. It simply means that Christ's relationship with the church is being more understood and applied within the marriage covenant. My second reason for not being convinced is this. Paul seems to be talking about direction. He really does. Romans 1 says this. Next slide. There we go. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, is this about intensity and power or is this about direction? William Loder, that Australian scholar that I mentioned earlier who thinks that same-sex sexual activity is okay for Christians but just simply disagrees with Paul, here's what he says. Very, very interesting. Clearly, assumptions about male honor and about excess play a role, but we need to see that Paul is generalizing here. He is not just talking about exploitation of slaves or about pederasty. He is talking also of those whose passion is mutual, of consenting adults. Here's the language. With or for one another. He is employing an established argument that seeks to make a causal link between a broken relationship with God through idolatry that denies God's true being and a broken relationship with oneself that denies one's true design as male or female. Do you see what he's saying? Paul isn't specifically singling out the abuser or the older man or even the Roman elite households. He is specifically talking about a mutual giving up of nature, think Genesis 1 and design, for same-sex sexual activity. Now, not only this, but there's been much scholarship done on sexual relationships between women in the first century, which did not have exploitation and were across the board quite mutual and equal. And Paul in Romans 1 equates both gay and lesbian sex by placing them in the same thought. So if it were about abusive same-sex sex, why link it with lesbian sex unless he was talking about the mutuality that was known in lesbian relationships? You're like, that's a deep dive. To get even more specific, 1 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 6 is fascinating. Here's how 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reads. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the words used for men who have sex with men here are malakos and arsenikoites. Malakos and arsenikoites. Those are the Greek, the Greek words mashed together for men who have sex with men. Now, if you were to look at this in your Bibles, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right above that men who have sex with men, there would be a little letter. There'd be a little note there. And the NIV reads this. This is what it says on my note. The words men who have sex with men refer to the passive and active participants in homosexual sex. 
What Paul did here was he specifically coined practically a new term in Greek from the Greek translation of Leviticus 18, verse 22. So in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18 is all about the sexual laws for Israel. And what Paul does is he picks these two different terms out, malakos, mal- malakoi, malakos, and arsenikoites, and he mashes them together to be almost visceral in his description. Here's what malakoi means. It translates as soft or effeminate, or the one who is the receiving partner of penetration. Arsenikoitai is referring to somebody who, it, it, it literally uh, translates man better, man better. So somebody who uh, is the giving partner in sexual activity. In Greek, this new word that he invents gives a clear description of those who are the receiving partner and those who are the giving partner. And in context, both are being condemned here, not just one, uh, not the one who's like, you know, giving. Okay, this is why kids couldn't be in here. Now you understand. Okay, the meaning is relatively clear. Men should not take another man to bed like they would take a woman to bed. Lastly, I'm not convinced because I don't think it really matters what Paul knew about gender and sex. See, some people would say, Paul didn't know that people were born gay. Well, do we know that people are born gay? We do not know if there's a gay gene or if people develop same sexual desire because of their environment. We just don't know. And if there was a gene that made someone more attracted to their same gender, would that undo the design of Genesis 1 and the entire overarching story of male and female throughout the Bible? I don't think so. People are born with all sorts of different urges that we have to learn to control and become virtuous. See, the Bible doesn't really speak to how you got the attractions that you have. The Bible has a general story of how things got the way they are, but not a specific one. But that really isn't the matter. The Bible seems to be more concerned with how you as an individual honor the design of God and how you choose to live for the kingdom regardless of how you feel. See, there are three components to ourselves in relation to this topic. There's our attractions. Who we're attracted to. Who do you want to have sex with? There's who you're attracted to. Then there's our identity. And the question is this, do we, does our identity boil down to simply who we wanna have sex with? I wanna have sex with these kinds of people. That means I am this. And then there's our actions. Who do you actually have sex with? The Bible doesn't condemn attractions. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way. Every way. So he was certainly tempted with same-sex desire if he was tempted in every way. The Bible does deal with identity, which we'll get to at the end, but primarily the Bible is talking about actions. Whether you choose as someone who's in Christ to live in line with God's design or against God's design. That is what I think Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about orientation, he's talking about activity. Now, to close things up, I really wanna say this, and if you haven't heard me yet, hopefully you'll hear me now. You do not have to agree with me to belong in this family. But I do want every person who listens to this to see that what all of these arguments have in common uh, for changing how we read these six passages is that they treat the Bible in a subjectivist manner. My community's present is wiser than the traditionally interpreted scriptural past. 
And what I'm far more concerned about in our family is what a subjectivist reading does to the gospel. What does it do to the gospel? If you, if you adopt that hermeneutic and you apply it across the board, what does it do to the gospel? See, if you have a traditional hermeneutic, like I do, you will have problematic passages and you will have uncomfortable evenings like this one. Ha 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 ha. Gosh, wow. Uh, if you have a progressive hermeneutic, you will have a problematic gospel. You cannot have one hermeneutic of progress when it comes to Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, but a more literal hermeneutic when it comes to Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 10, because they just feel so good. If you are constantly undermining the role of the Bible in your life, holding other people's experiences above it, how will you know that Jesus was really telling you the truth? Or that Paul's understanding of salvation was correct if he was wrong everywhere else? What is at stake is the trustworthiness of the word of God. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think of what I've felt when I have treated the Bible that way, to get around passages that make me uncomfortable. I've often felt like an infant tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Maybe you feel like that too. So what sort of glasses are you wearing? What sort of assumptions have you made about the Bible? Do you have different hermeneutics for different passages, different glasses that you exchange? It's a devotional day. It's a study day. It's a culture day. I want us as a church to think about that. That's why I felt the need to talk about what we talked about tonight. Now, what does this all mean for us as a church? I wanna talk through some practical implications, and this is gonna be like rapid fire, a rapid fire section, okay, so pay attention. Okay, so what does this mean for people in our church who are same-sex attracted? Because there's probably even many of you who are in this room right now, and you are same-sex attracted. Here's the worry that I would imagine that you have. Okay. So this church reads the Bible with this sort of hermeneutic. Are they going to try to change me? Will I be accepted if I really peel back the curtain and show who I really am? Will I be loved? And my short answer to that is yes. Yes, you will. At Saints Hill, we do not want to convert you to become straight, but we also believe one of our core values is that anything is possible. I won't violate that value. I know stories of people who have gone from attraction to the same gender to attraction to the opposite gender. But it also must be said, if that doesn't happen for you, or if that's not something that you wanna seek out, Jesus displays a beautiful life of living without sex for the kingdom of heaven. My goal for same-sex attracted Christians is my same goal for anyone. Find out what he says about you. Give yourself over to him and just watch what happens. Now, for those of you who are not same-sex attracted, may I remind you, our hermeneutic, or Alex's hermeneutic, if you like it, uh, leads us to adopt a literal interpretation of Jesus' love. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak on this particular issue. One of the biggest gifts that we can give our brothers and sisters who are sexually attracted to their same gender is the gift of not being shocked. I'm not shocked by you. I'm not disgusted or repulsed by you. 
Every one of us, me included, has temptations sexually that go beyond marriage between a man and a woman for life. So we should work to show the same grace we have received and would like to continue to receive. And what about identity and pride? Is the gay identity sin? You know I haven't used the term throughout this message, gay. Like should Christians call themselves gay Christians or same-sex attracted Christians? What's going on there? I do not think it's a sin to be same-sex attracted. Hopefully that's been clear. (laughs) I also have friends who have identified themselves as gay celibate Christians or gay Christians. But note that the term gay comes with an entire political movement that is antithetical to Genesis design, and this is why I have used the term same-sex attracted. We jump very quickly from our attractions to identity. I'm attracted to this, this means this about me. And I would like to suspend that for just a moment. This also leads me to conclude that Christians should not promote in any way the agenda of pride. Just think about the name, pride. This is the reversal of virtue. What was once considered vice is rebranded in the modern age to be something virtuous. And, and, And this is a little bit of Margaret Thatcher coming out of me, but if you need to say that you are proud about something, maybe you're not that proud about it. See, here's my problem with Christians identifying as straight or gay or whatever else. Coming into Christ is supposed to change your identity, not just tweak your beliefs a little bit. And so every person, each one of us, needs to determine just how deep having one's identity in Christ actually goes. How deep does it really go? Does it extend all the way to every part of one's being, even to their sexuality? Or is it more like a dinner jacket? It's an accoutrement to the essence one is inside their psyche and lived experience. Oliver O'Donovan, who's a former professor of moral and pastoral theology at Oxford, this is what he had to say. If Christianity has a saving message to speak to human beings, it must surely be you may be free from the constraints of your identities. Every person who comes into Christ will need to release some of their previously held identities in order to fully step into him. And this exchange is why the gospel is such good news. Nothing of earth that you've done or participated in or has been done to you can get in the way of you becoming a son or a daughter of the creator of the universe. Here's how 1 Corinthians 6 speaks to this. Once again, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that just about covers everybody, doesn't it? That's all of us. But here is the next verse. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God. That is what you were. Christianity doesn't say, believe this. It says, become this. When you come into Christ, he gives you an entirely new identity. His name, it takes over your whole world, your whole life, and you begin to live with a new way of seeing yourself and the world. The gospel is good news for every person. 
Because after living in this world, every person needs a new identity. They need to be born again, right? I wanna end by meditating on the love of God. I was hanging out the other night at the Walters house with uh, my buddy Philip and his dad, Felipe. And Felipe is awesome. I haven't, this is like the first time I got to hang out with him. He's just such a great guy. And he was telling me about the love that he has for his daughters. He has grown daughters. And that, um, you know, I'm a dad of a daughter or, or of a girl. And um, he was saying, you know, regardless of what is happening in their lives, I love them so much, whether they're doing well or whether they're not doing very well. And it made me think, if my daughter had same-sex attraction or gender confusion, I would crawl over broken glass the size of Texas just for her to understand my love for her. That's how much I love her. I don't love her because of what she believes. I don't love her because of her actions. I don't love her because of her identities. I simply love that child because I'm a dad. I'm a dad. And here's what Jesus would say to me. If you who are evil, Alex, know how to love Georgie, how much more does our Father in heaven love us? You see, the gospel is you, isn't, hey, once you behave and once you believe, you'll belong. It's no, you belong because you know you need a father and, the, and you need someone who will tell you who you are. The good news is that Jesus has made that possible. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.